This is the No Nonsense Agile podcast. Join us for weekly discussions on agile, product development, and leadership with world-class experts who provide valuable insights and practical advice for industry professionals. Subscribe now to learn the latest trends and best practices in the field. In this episode, we talk to Donna Spencer about user experience design in empowered product teams. We discuss user research, information architecture, and visual design, and the problem with the way UX is often done in traditional teams and agile teams. We discuss the value of having a UX person embedded in a product team and the responsibility UX designers have to educate other members of the team in UX. And finally, we talk about UX design models, the problem with design sprints, and the value of evolving your design over time by going broad and going narrow. Welcome to the No Nonsense Agile podcast. I'm Shane Gibson. And I'm Murray Robinson. And I'm Donna Spencer. Hi, Donna. Thanks for coming on. We want to talk to you about Agile and UX, whether they should be separate or together. Why don't you kick us off by telling us about your background and experience? So I've been what we now call a UX designer or a product designer since the late 1990s. I've done a lot of work in government, done a little bit in large corporate. I've done a lot of consulting with small organizations. I'm now working for a startup who makes software for other startups. I've also taught both Agile and UX for a postgrad bootcamp. So I'm a UX practitioner, but I understand theoretical and practical agile really well. And have you worked with a Warren agile team? Oh, yes. The first agile team I worked in was probably about 2008, 2009. I worked a lot of traditional waterfall before that. And what well-known projects or sites would you have worked on? The most well-known is ABC iView, which is our national broadcaster's TV streaming service. That's my shiniest project. Otherwise, a lot of what I've done is invisible because a lot has been internal software that runs government departments and processes. So yeah, iView is my shiniest thing. All right. Let's talk about the problem to be solved. So what is the traditional non-agile design model? Before Agile got really popular, I used to work a lot with business analysts. So often a business analyst and I would spend a lot of time figuring out what was needed. So we might call those requirements. We would figure out what needed to be done. And then I would spend a chunk of time at my desk drawing up screens and specifications and provide it to a team. And I would usually stick around to both work through the detail and also to do things like user testing when we had something that we could put in front of people. So traditional design up front and hand it off to a team. So... The project's already well underway by the time you get involved. The business case has been done. Yep. You're being brought in to say how the requirements might be implemented in yeah, a Yeah, sometimes I would help with the requirements gathering as well. Okay. So what's the problem with that approach? There's lots of problems with that approach. Firstly, there's a time slip problem. The things that you talk about early on that then get built a couple of years later or even a short time later, things change. So you can deliver something that might have been accurate at the beginning, but life's changed. 
there's a problem in that if I am designing a set of screens for an application and I don't know what technologies are being used, then I can design something either that is impossible to build or that actually doesn't utilise the technology well enough because I don't know what we're going to be using. So I design a bunch of stuff that somebody tries to work with later and it could be overdone or underdone and I wouldn't have any idea. The other difficulty with that is that it is genuinely hard for people to understand how something is going to work and feel based on a set of diagrams and specifications. Not many people are good at reading requirements and understanding them. It's like reading house plans. Most people can't look at a set of house plans and get in their head what this thing is going to be and do. I worked on projects that cost millions and millions of dollars and went nowhere because by the time the consultant delivered the spec, the software still wasn't what the organisation needed for all those reasons. So do you think that you were able to get a design up front that was comprehensive, accurate? No, not a chance. So even now I work agile, I'll often do a little chunk up front because I'm trying to help a team visualise something. And like, I'm experienced. I've worked with all kinds of tech. I've worked with all kinds of front-end frameworks. I have a lot of experience. There is no way on earth I can get something right up front. Yeah. But why is that? Is that because you're not trying hard enough? Often you don't know actual business rules. A client hasn't thought yet about all the things that might happen through a process. Often, as I said, you don't know the technology you're working with, so you don't know what kind of constraints and opportunities it has. But also, when you do stuff up front, it's really hard to do the nitty-gritty detail. So as an example, if I'm using a front-end framework with a team, I'm going to go through at the detailed level of design and define out how each component should work. I don't know what I'm using. How can I do that? So yeah, it's just not possible. It's possible for really small apps and maybe really small websites that I have a lot of experience doing before. I can design upfront a basic website, but I don't think that's what we're talking about. Yeah. But what about the argument that the requirements and design should be technology neutral because the technology should serve the requirements and design, not the other way around? That means that they're still too high level because they've got to inherently work with the technology. They're built in a technology. So even login, the organisation I'm working with at the moment, we use a particular login provider. I don't have to design login. We're going to use a technology and use its strengths because there's lots of ways you can do login. So no, design isn't technology neutral. Yeah, I agree with that. So same with us. My original wireframe for the login for our app had a username password because that was naturally right. On the first cut of MVP, we use Google accounts. So there is no username password. There's type in your email and then it's going to take you to Google and they'll authenticate you and we get it back. So that technology changed our design. I couldn't put a username password there. But there's also login patterns where you can send people a code. There's new ways of thinking about it. Yeah. So if I came in and designed username password, there might be better things that we could do because a set of users access stuff in a particular way. Yeah. A classic example of that is two-factor authentication. Are we going to invest technology that sends an email? Are we going to invest yeah. technology that does an app on the phone that gives me my second authentication? The other thing that after you've done some design for a while and built some stuff, the concept of a design system comes out. There's a yep. kind of concept of reusable design components yep. that work with the technology that often yep. it makes sense just to use them again. 
yeah. when you hit something new, then you got to go back and actually do more of a research understanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was also thinking there about projects where we're doing something fairly new and a little self-contained. So design systems are super important for large organisations who are trying to have a coherent approach across really complex things. And yep. over time for even a single designer just to be consistent with their own stuff. So often we find when people come in as consultants, they often get brought in when something's a project. It has yeah. a beginning, it has an end. It's just going to be worked on, but the big funding is going to disappear. Yeah. Do you find that the problem is people treat design as a one-off task at the beginning and not as an inherent skill and capability mm. in the team to keep feeding and watering and iterate that product? Look, that's how I used to see design work. Companies would hire a designer or hire a consultancy to do the design work. I think that's really disappeared in the last 10 years. That's how I used to get work. People would approach me to do a piece of work. I would always make sure I had a long tail way of hanging out with them. Uh, and as a freelancer, that was easy for me. But I stopped getting those kind of offers. Started actually ha have to find work for myself rather than it come to me because I think most design work went in-house, which is where it should be. So I think that there is less of that. And this is probably due to Agile. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about the idea that research and design should be specialized skills done in specialized teams by specialized mm -hmm. people, because that's the traditional model. Mm -hmm. You have a design team, the project engages them to do design work. And yep. the reason you have a design team is it's highly specialized. You need a center of excellence and they'll be much better and more efficient and cost-effective if they're all working together across multiple projects. They're just yep. assigned one project after another. That's a traditional model, isn't it? That's certainly a model that I see in biggish organizations. And yeah. research and design is skilled work and there is skill that goes into it. There is skill in learning how to do research really well, both how to set up a piece of research so that you're getting valid representative answers and that you're talking to the right people and you're talking to them the right way and that you're not leading them. That's a skill. Talking to people and listening and asking questions openly is a skill. Understanding detailed interaction design and how people interact with technologies and how they use things, how brains work is a skill. But these aren't impossible skills. They just are things that some people are better at than others. I always think this is all about risk. If you're working on something where doing it in an unskilled way will lead to really poor results, you want to hire skills. But if you're working in something where you actually genuinely have an opportunity to do something, get it out, get feedback, listen, build changes in, you don't necessarily need exceptionally experienced, high skill designers. Yeah. So you can always balance this with what do we really need to do here? What's the quality that we need? And there's not enough super high skilled designers who really understand research well and who really understand interaction design and have worked with the right technologies. There just aren't. Yeah. Let's talk about the research side of it a bit. Mm. There's an argument that there's nowhere near enough UX research done before people try and solve a problem. In the traditional model you were talking about, mm. 
there's already been a business case and a problem defined and requirements yeah. done. There may not have been any user experience research done yeah. at all. And in Agile, it's quite common for UX research not to be done very much either. Yeah. So is there a problem here that people are just not doing enough UX research? Look, UX folks will always say that you've got to do the research, you have to understand the user problem, et cetera, et cetera. I happen to have spent most of my career working with startups and on projects. And my preference personally is to trust the client somewhat, to trust that in doing a business case, in thinking it all through, that there is a problem to be solved. They're not just putting money into something that doesn't exist. And of course, there are tons of things that we know have been built that have no actual use. But I am quite comfortable with the idea that you have a go at building something, that you use the skills of a team to take a good guess, get feedback on it, and then figure out its fit. It's really hard to do generative research for a problem, particularly with technologies or ideas that don't exist yet. It's really hard to research things that aren't in people's heads. I used to say nobody knew they wanted all their albums in their pocket. You couldn't have done generative research that came up with the idea of an iPod. You might have picked up bits and pieces of it by observation, but it's really hard. I reckon it's much better to create something, even if it's a prototype, and then say, how might this help you do a thing? There are people who say that if you do that, you're going to be biasing the people you're speaking to, to think about the solution that you're providing. Whereas in reality, what you should be doing is questioning everything. Start with the customer or the user and say, what are you trying to do? And what are the jobs that you're trying to do? The whole jobs to be done yeah. framework and focus on their problem and yep. then if you understand their problem well enough you can come out with a solution which is much better than a group of managers would think of inside a company yes people will say that but there's something wrong in there and the wrong thing is that people don't know what their problems are so i was talking to a bunch of developers recently because i was trying to do some design process work to help make sure that our developers have an easy job working with designers. So I talked to them about work they've done before and good process and bad process. And not one of them told me the thing that I actually know is the problem because they didn't know it was a problem. They don't know that it's a solvable thing. They don't know it can be better. We don't know our problems. We don't know what could be easier in life. Yeah. As we're moved on from talking to people that come primarily from an agile domain and to people mm. that come from a product domain, but actually work with agility. I've struggled with the whole, if I asked them what they wanted, they'd ask for a faster horse. Yeah. I've struggled with the whole Steve Jobs persona of, he just knew what was right. Yeah. He's an asshole about it, but he yeah. knew what was right and he demanded that. And where I've got to now is mm. this idea around where you're going to place your bet. Got to reduce uncertainty. And so you do a mm. bunch of bets to reduce uncertainty. So you yeah. can, I'm more comfortable building an MVP yeah. for a problem I think exists yeah. and then go and test it. I've got a bias now that that problem exists. I've got some bias of this is how I think I might want to save it. And I can only now iterate that problem. Mm. But that's yeah. my bet. I'm comfortable investing my money. And my bet is actually we're going to be revolutionary and we're going to do it in a way that nobody's ever thought about it before. You just have yeah. to 
figure out your context, where you want to put your money, what bet yeah. you want to take, and then follow that process. And yeah. if you can't articulate that, then actually you're just gambling. Whether you've got a team of five researchers up front or you've got a product built lean and in front of the customer, yeah. if you don't understand the choice you made, that's when you're in trouble. Yeah, I came up with a model at one point years ago and it was all about risk. It was like, how much do you know? What's your opportunity to learn as you go? Because sometimes it's hard to learn as you go. Sometimes it's hard to actually get in contact with people and get feedback. What's the consequence of taking that dive and having a go at something? It would be genuinely good to go talk with some people and find out how they do this thing and look for gaps or look for potential problems. Or you make something and you show it to them and you don't have to do that in a biased way. You can still show things to people, ask open questions about it, try to put it into their life so they've got something to react to and go, oh, yeah, I really would like all my albums in my pocket. Yeah, it's interesting. We've been talking to people about patterns and pattern libraries recently, and it's pretty clear that if you are aware of a pattern, you start to see it in the world around you. But if you're not aware of a pattern, you don't even see it. I was listening to a podcast yesterday and it was a guy called Andrew Tokley. He's a product coach and he mm -hmm. walked the length of New Zealand and he listened to a lot of podcasts when he did that. And one of the ones he remembered was a podcast where a psychologist or somebody was talking about the human brain yep. and saying, first half of our lives, it's about filling up our brain with new mm -hmm. things, about learning. Mm -hmm. Second half of our life is about pattern recognition. Yeah. Um, do you mm. find actually that it's the more experienced people who are actually better at discovering those UX patterns and doing that research because they are pattern matching? Or is that actually a danger that they trying to align it with a pattern so therefore people who don't have the patterns are actually going to truly discover the new things i think it takes some experience with the world to listen and to understand what you're hearing and it takes experience with different cultures and different kinds of people and getting out of a bubble to really understand what you're hearing when you're talking to users so there's probably something in experience in the world but that's not always about age you could have lived in four countries by the time you're in your mid-20s and be really good at identifying that people think and react in different ways. And you could live in one place for your whole life and not understand what you're hearing. We've talked about problems with traditional ways of working. I just want to go through some of the criticisms of Lean UX and Empower Product Teams mm -hmm. and so on as the alternative <laughs> way of working. So people will say that they undervalue the specialized skills of UX researchers and designers. Another issue with them is that it's very expensive to build something to learn from it. And it's much better value to mock something up to yeah. learn. So build, measure, learn is very expensive unless you're just building prototypes or mock-ups. Or proofs of concept of technology or small parts of things that you can build quickly. You don't want to do build, measure, learn. If your build is expensive and complex, you would try to learn off prototypes in that case. But if yeah. you can build something to prove a technology, to prove an idea and get feedback from it, and you can do that in a cost-efficient way, then that's a good way of learning. The other criticism I've heard from designers is that if you try and design in an iterative and incremental way, focusing on the short term, focusing mm -hmm. on the next sprint, you get highly fragmented designs. Yeah. Yeah, you absolutely do. 
That is absolutely true. I've worked in a couple of places where they were designing very feature-driven. Here's your slice. This week, we're going to do that. Then you're going to do that. Then you're going to do that. And I'm like, oh, I can't just spit out features one by one because you do need a coherence across an app that you're building designing. There's always global things like navigation and overall flow and where do you put the settings and designing a screen when somebody's creating content. You want to know how you're going to be editing it so that you can design it so it can be used once. What I do in basically everything is do a really skinny horizontal view of as much as I know about so that I can get a big picture of what something looks like as a whole and then you can dive down into the vertical slices and do things in detail. But if you haven't got a picture of that horizontal hole, your designs will be really patchy and scratchy and they will feel very linear. They'll feel like you're going through an old style wizard where you do this and your task is done, where when you design holistically, you can actually figure out ways that something feels much more fluid, where you can move around it in a less linear way. So yeah, they absolutely are right that designing feature by feature can make really crunchy designs. <laughs> yeah, and leads to very frustrated designers. Yeah, it's hard because you're like, I don't know what to do here because I need to put this into a hole. What do you think about the argument that Agile is an engineering approach and engineers don't respect designers and researchers anywhere near enough? I think that that's all individual. I work with engineers who super respect designers and design skills and working together well in a team as an idea and as a way of working in a team and planning work and working collectively. It's a great idea. It doesn't have to just be for engineering. It did come from there and there's some hangovers that are about engineering, but we learn and we change and we adapt our ways of working. All right. Well, let's talk about the solution then. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of problems with a traditional way of working mm. and there are some problems with an extreme short-term focused agile way of working. Yeah. So what's the best way to work in your experience, <laughs> Donna? There's no one best way because there's no one team shape, is there? And there's no one organization shape. So what a startup does in a small team is not the same as what a bank does when they're trying to produce things across a whole organization that actually have to talk to each other. So there's no perfect way. And that matters because you can't say you have to do it this way because it'll work in one context and not another. The Spotify model worked for Spotify because Spotify had a particular culture and a particular way of working. You can't just pick up that thing and drop it onto another organization. So you can't just apply everything to every project. So you're saying you don't believe in best practice? I believe in good practice and I believe in patterns and I believe in analysing what you are about to do and what needs to be achieved and figuring out a good way of getting there. Okay. Yeah, this practice is bullshit. Okay, let's talk about teams. How do we integrate people with research and design skills with people <laughs> with engineering and test skills? Should we do that? Yeah, of course we should. <laughs> How else do we think things are going to happen? If we don't have the people who are doing the big picture planning of a product, whether yeah. that's a product owner, some UX, the engineers, the whole team together, we've got to integrate the what are we doing here with how does it work, how does it look with building it with 
checking that all of that is actually built well and achieves what we need to achieve. That's a team. It's not some people handing off work to each other and never talking to each other again. Do you like the empowered product team approach that Marty Kagan talks about? I haven't read Marty Kagan for a while, but I think empowered product teams are amazing. Yeah. You're going to get no argument from us. The idea about teams focused on a product and the outcomes from the product rather than focusing on a project and teams that are cross-functional, you know, a multi-skilled, be able to take an idea all the way through from beginning to end in one team. I think that approach is really sensible. It works really well. It also works well for me because being in this field for a long time, I have a lot of core UX skills, but I've got a lot of random other skills. I can write. I can do some maths things. I understand finance really well because I ran a company for a long time. There's other things I bring to teams and I don't like being put in my box and just say, okay, You do the screens. I'm like, but actually I can help you do QA and I can do stuff. Why would we hire for somebody really specific to do just QA when actually all of us can do that at a level of quality that's appropriate? I don't want anybody thinking that I don't value QA because I totally do. That was just an example. That is an interesting (laughs) example though because you could test a product for the user experience from the user's point of view. and. You may well find things that nobody's thought of because they were too focused on business rules and features. Yeah. And I do that. I can also help think through all the exceptions so that we test all the things that go wrong as well as the happy flow right through the middle. So yeah, cross-functional empowered teams are sensible. Yeah. Can other people in the team do any of this stuff? There's an argument that really only the user research specialist should do research and only the user design specialist should do design and other people in the team, if they try and get involved with it, are just going to mess it up. That just devalues the humans you work with. Imagine you're working in a team. You've got a bunch of nice people and you like working with them. Some of them are really genuinely good at talking, listening and deeply understanding. Those people can definitely do user research. But if some of those people on the team do not enjoy talking to people, aren't good at listening and understanding what people are really saying and what they really mean, or only listen for the things they want to hear, those people are probably not going to be the ones that you want to be talking to potential customers. I have very little strength in visual design and aesthetics. Nobody wants me doing the high fidelity, high illustration visual design. It's not my skill. And if I try to do it, my designs are going to look like a five-year-old did them. What I'm really good at is all of the flows and interactions and understanding how people look at things on screen and how they think and the complexity of dealing with a whole product. But I don't do high fidelity design. Somebody with a skill in that does it. You shouldn't do things that you're unskilled at, but you can help, you can be involved, you can support. Products need words in them. Some people are better at writing words than others. So no, it doesn't have to be people with specialist skills, but it 
does need to be people who know where they fit into a set of skills. Yeah. So if somebody mm. asks you to design a team of 10 to develop a product or a service yep. that had an important visual element to it, what people would you put in that team? What roles would you have? Oh, look, all products are different. I'm never going to give you a black and white answer here, am I? What design skills or what? Would you have one information architect, one UI designer, six engineers, two testers, no. one requirements engineer? No, I want a team of people with skills and to bring in the specialist skills you need. So actually, you don't need somebody on a team all the time to produce high fidelity designs and branding. Like a logo gets made once, a brand gets made once. It might get tweaked over time, but they need to be on the team full-time all the time. So that's a skill that you might bring in. You might bring in research skills if you don't have them on your team for particular pieces of work. Depends how your organisation's structured. You don't need a researcher sitting on a team the whole time if it's not a research-heavy project. But if it is a project where you're doing continuous discovery and you're going out and talking to users every couple of weeks, you might want an individual there all the time. It depends on the product and the team structure. You've got to analyse what you need. And I certainly hear people say you need a researcher, you need a hi-fi designer, you need some project management and a tester. And we talked about a 10-person team. I think we don't have any engineers now. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Particularly if you have three UX researchers and two designers. I don't yeah, know how you can afford any engineers. Yeah, who's actually producing to build, to research and test? But for cross-functionally empowered yeah. product focus, team still does need to draw on a, a specialised group from time to time. So yeah. for people who do high fidelity wireframe designs for you. How do you set that up? So what's the role of that other team and how should that specialised team work with the product teams? Oh, again, it depends on the size of your organisation and what skills are around. We used to do pieces of consulting work. You can prep a set of wireframes. You can prepare the requirements for how the brand should communicate and how it should be reflected in the world. And you can get somebody to do a piece of work around that where you know they deliver it in a project they deliver it over maybe a couple of weeks and then you need a ongoing stream where you can get advice get additional changes because it's never going to be complete so if I've had somebody do a high fidelity design to something I'm working on and then I come up with a layout that I hadn't thought about before we might need a bit of extra work or we might need that person to QA to make sure that we're not missing important things that we just haven't seen because we don't have the skill to know what to look for. So you can have skills brought into teams to deliver chunks as long as there's a way of having that available to you later for both QA and bits of ongoing work. And that way you don't need somebody full-time sitting around trying to make work. Yeah, we talked to Jürgen Palo about this. He has his unfixed model, and I think he would oh. call that group the capability crew. And the idea is that the product teams are customers of that specialist team, yep. which is quite different to the normal model. The normal model is those people are the experts and the police, and everybody has to do what they say. But if it's a capability team and the customers are the product teams and most of this capability is in the team, except for where it just doesn't make sense for it to be. 
because yeah. it's not used all the time. That's yeah. quite a good model, I think. Yeah. I will say, though, you do need a person to look after the user experience across the whole time. You don't just get the UX done. chunk. Yeah, yeah. Somebody yeah. needs to work on the whole thing. Yeah, and you can still bring in experts from time to time to help. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. The product team needs to have ownership of the user experience, not just outsource it to somebody else who comes and goes. Yeah. So we've talked about customer research and organizational structure. Let's talk about the process. There's a the traditional model, which is the yep. phased and gated model. There's double diamond, which is supposed to be done iteratively. There's lean UX from Jeff Gotthold. Yep. There's design sprint which is yep. interesting, very contained. And then there's continuous discovery. Yeah. People like Teresa Torres, who we've yep. had on. What process model do you recommend when we're trying to work with this kind of integrated product teams? One that I use, so I teach undergrad UX and I use this with my students. It's called a design funnel. The design funnel contains those ideas ideas of going wide, narrowing down that the double diamond has. The double diamond doesn't actually tell you how to do anything. The double diamond literally says, don't forget to broaden your ideas before you select them. That's Mm. the point. And it isn't intuitive for people to say, let's go wide and let's broaden out before we select what we do. So the design funnel, you start with a world where you don't actually know very much. You learn some things, maybe from research, you make some decisions and narrow down your world. You might do a bit of prototyping, test it with people, you learn some more things, you make some decisions and go wide and narrow down over time through a process. But it's only a model and it's only a way of thinking. It isn't linearly this is what you do day to day, but it's a good way of thinking about the fact that you're taking information at lots of points in a project And each time you go a bit wider, take in some information and then narrow down to focus on your goals. I like it as a way of thinking about how to get from one end of a process to the other. A problem with the double diamond is that it's got arrows going backwards and nobody likes going backwards. It feels like you're going backwards. Nobody feels like they want to go back. And it feels really uncomfortable to say, we've got to learn some things and then we might need to go back. And everybody goes, oh, I don't want to go back. So if you think about it more as a funnel where you're narrowing down the world the whole time, then you don't go backwards ever, but you might learn some things and narrow down. What other models do you mention? Design sprints. What do you think of that? So I have a strong opinion about design sprints. My caveat is that this is about the design sprint as it is defined in the design sprint book. So sometimes people are doing design sprints where what they're really just doing is a series of workshops over a period of time to learn some stuff. I have problems with the design sprint methodology as the book says to do it in that it actually isn't user-centered. Users in that process are treated like people to verify your good ideas towards the end. There isn't really any kind of discovery or any focus on user needs at the beginning. So it's not a user-centered process. It's a product-centered process. I also have very large issues with the way decisions are made in that process. And primarily that it's about getting some ideas out and dot voting. And dot voting is not a good way of making good decisions on how to move forward in a design process, primarily because people will 
vote on things that look more aesthetically pleasing, even if they're not better ideas. They will vote on things that are generated by people with the higher power. So you can actually end up with a wrong or a poor choice just by the mechanism of voting. It's a poor decision-making framework. Because of the time pressure and just the way it's structured, only like really shallow ideas come out. And you don't get time to do reflective work, really understand whether the idea is going to work, like really go deep with them. So you end up with low stuff that has been chosen in ways that maybe not be ideal. And you think you've come out the end with the right idea, but there's just a lot of thinking that's not done well in that process. So I don't ever use design sprints, though I absolutely get people in virtual rooms to work through ideas together, explore things and make decisions. I just wouldn't do it in a five-day or four-day defined process. So your funnel process sounds similar to the continuous discovery process that we talked about with Teresa. I don't know in her process whether there is that kind of idea of going wide and narrowing down, of making decisions and working towards your goal, or whether hers is just more make sure you talk to users frequently and are always getting input. I guess each time you get input, you're going wide. In the design funnel kind of idea, some of the way that you can go wider is working with your team to generate ideas and to explore different ways of doing things, which isn't necessarily like a continuous discovery with users. I'd combine the patterns. I'd say we've got a whole lot of uncertainty. Continuous discovery allows us to constantly talk to people to reduce the uncertainty to go to the next level of funnel. And you could actually combine them and say, you have to use continuous discovery to move down the funnel. And that would be okay. Cause it's like, we're constantly getting feedback from customers yeah. about what we want to bet on. That would be a great combination of those patterns. I don't always know how all of these work. Cause I don't necessarily read these books or I might skim them and I'm like, oh yeah, that's stuff that I know that I do. And the audience for those is is people who are newer to these processes. As an author, I know this, you distill things and you write them in black and white, this is a process kind of way because that's a way to teach and it helps people understand. I would like to be able to be more black and white, but it's not how I think. Yeah, I think Lean UX has a funnel idea as well. Yeah, maybe it does. I like that idea, that ideas are coming in from everywhere. You're Mm. coming in because you're talking to customers every week. They're coming in because stakeholders are saying things or managers or the team have ideas. Or you might get an opportunity from a really neat piece of technology that you didn't know existed. And you're like, oh, wow, that will let us do something different or easier, but it works in this way. So you change it. You're like, wow, I just saved a whole lot of time and money by a new idea coming in. So there's ideas coming in from everywhere. They come into a funnel and we have to evaluate them before we build them. If it's a funnel that gets narrower, that means that you're eliminating things because you did some research or you did some prototyping and it wasn't the right thing to do. Yeah. Mm. The problem I see, though, is the funnel becomes an assembly line where senior managers put ideas in the top of the funnel and then expect them to be analyzed, designed, built and tested and come out the other end. Yeah. In that case, that's more of a funnel with sharp sides. There's no new ideas coming in. When I draw the funnel, the edges are all jagged because you go wide, you narrow down, you go wide, you narrow down. My funnel would have scratchier edges because you're learning stuff. 
Yeah, there's a really good sales book called Leaky Funnel. It's oh, yeah. Funnel of holes. So that's what yours is. You've got holes yeah, maybe in the funnel. Makes... And as you pour more and more water in, yeah. stuff's going to leak out of the funnel before it can go through. You can't just keep piling it in. Well, let's just say we throw ideas out of the funnel because we've made decisions that they're not yeah. Yeah. the thing we're going to do right now. So there you go. You've got a leaky design funnel. That's your pattern. That's your thing. You need to write a book on it. What advice would you give to a product manager that you're working with when somebody, some hippo, some exec mm. says, I want this? The thing that needs to happen there is the person who's being asked to do a thing to understand whether that thing is a good and correct thing to do. So a senior manager might say this thing has to happen because there are actual legal requirements or there's regulatory frameworks and there's regulatory stuff and you've got to actually do this thing and that's probably valid. But if it's just a, hey, I was talking to somebody over dinner and they said we've got to add AI to our project, then the product person has to build a relationship there so that they can dig into it and say, okay, let's understand why this thing, where's it coming from? What is the goal here instead of what is the thing? This should be their skill is understanding whether the thing they're being asked to do is the right thing or not. And sometimes that'll be, let's go check this with users and make sure that there is a need for the thing that somebody's told us to do. But sometimes it'll be, let's go check the law. Let's go check that the business viability is there. We had somebody say, a salesperson said that IBM have to have this feature. They always use it. It's very important. And then the team went and did some research on their product and found that IBM never used this feature. So yeah, yeah a bit yeah. of research. Same with legal issues that sometimes executives yeah. say you have to do this for a legal reason. That's right. Yeah, and yeah. if you investigate it, you find that no, that's just common industry practice, but the law doesn't require you to do it that way. I've pushed back on those things quite a lot where they're like, oh no, we're going to do it for legal or privacy or regulation reasons. And I'm like, okay, I'll go read the Privacy Act. Or compliance <laughs> with some sort of quality standard. Yeah. You go yeah. read it and you're like, oh, actually what it really says is this. So yeah. what is the relationship between product and UX? Should product people do UX? Do UX people make good product managers? Again, I'm not going to give you a yes, no, black and white answer. Product people should understand in detail what the product problem is they're solving and what is the user problem, the user need, the tasks that people actually want to achieve with this product. They need to understand it and they need to understand it deeply and care about it a lot. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily the person who should be talking to the recruiter to get the panel of participants to do the research with. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're the one who has to talk to every individual in user research. It doesn't mean that they have to read every single support ticket that ever comes in. But they really should understand all of that. But product managers are busy. They're juggling a lot of internal relationships. They're often juggling a lot of coordinating with other products that work together. So it can be a really busy job. Then carving out a chunk of time to be the only person to talk to users is probably just not practical. But they do need to deeply understand 
those user needs as well as they deeply understand the business needs. Whether UX people make good product people, I think that some UX people probably are very, very good product people because they already have that open-mindedness, ability to research, ability to listen. They may not be good at coordinating a technical build though. And often the hard thing about leading a product is also understanding how to structure a backlog in a way that the tech folks, the developers, can do their work well. Somebody who's like purely done research is probably not going to make a great product manager because they don't understand how to work with a tech team. But certainly there's a lot of crossover in skill, I think. All right. Shall we go to summaries, Shane? Sounds like a plan. All right. So you started off talking about the difference between oh. internal versus external. You spent a lot of your career working on products that are internal to an organization, yep. not external like a public-facing Not shiny things, yeah. I'm now wondering, actually, is it different? Do you design differently for that? And if you would, why? The next thing we talked about is this common problem we have in Agile and we have in product. The earlier we do the work, the things change by the time we use it. So things change between the requirements and the design mm. to when we actually get around to building it. So you don't want to leave too much time. So the traditional fixed mindset way of working of do a piece of task and hand it over and wait doesn't help us. Also like that idea about design stuff is sometimes overdone or underdone. Where do we get that balance? And actually that's where people with those UX and design skills have that ability to just know that it's about right. And the other one that came through quite strongly is there is this middle set of skills, which is somebody who understands the technology side and understands the design side and the subject matter expertise, and then they're merging it together. They're not a concierge not only an orchestrator or conductor, but they are that glue. In the Agile world, we had the idea of three amigos. It's the trifecta of three sets of really strong skills and expertise yeah. being brought together to work as a team to solve some of those problems. I love the comment, people are not good at reading requirements. Wireframes are great, but they just help, but they're not the answer. I also love the idea that research and design is skilled work. It's a set of skills. And People often have trouble describing skills, but you actually brought some in. And I yeah. think you've probably got a whole lot more in your brain. If you could just write them yeah. down, that would be really helpful for me. So yeah. yeah, you talked about removing bias. How do we do research work, removing bias from that research work? Mm -hmm. That is a skill. We talked about the skill of listening, but then hearing. That's a skill. And then we talked about the idea that it's all about risk. So mm -hmm. there is no black and white. It's about what yeah. sort of bet you might want to make. Yeah, I like your phrasing of that, of what kind of better you're going to make. I might use that phrasing because it's a good one. That yeah. came from one of our other podcasts. And yeah. I was like, ah, finally, I've got a word. I used to use hypothesis and I was like, ah. Yeah, and <laughs> that word is loaded. But like yeah. what kind of better you're going to make, it's a good one. And so when we talk about risk, we want to know the risk criteria. And you gave us some good ones. What do you know already? Yep. That was a great one. Can you learn and iterate? Are you actually able to do it? And then what's the consequence of the wrong bet? There is no perfect way. There is no best practice. It's all about context. And it's about good practice and patterns. And I stopped writing after that because, like I said, as far as I was concerned, you answered it perfectly and I was done. It was a good insight, though. So that was good. Murray, what do you got? Yeah, I think the approach you put forward is one that we basically agree with. And we've had quite a lot of people saying that this is the way to go now. Mm -hmm. Empowered product teams made up of people 
with strong skills in all of the things you need to do to build a product from beginning to end, including yeah. research and design. But that doesn't have to mean that somebody is a very narrowly defined information architect and that's yeah. all they do on the team. In fact, one with a strong skill also has a lot of other things to offer yeah. the team that they can do. So this is the idea of T-shaped people. And if those people are working together in one team, then the person who's really strong, they might be called an information architect or UX designer mm. or researcher or something, that person can actually bring other people in the team up on yeah. their skill by getting them to help yeah. do the research. So rather than having a team of five specialist researchers mm. and designers sitting outside working ahead of you, it's actually a lot better to have that skill in the team, have an expert in the team who can then bring the whole team up. And the reason why that's better is because you're able to look at everything continuously. There's a lot of ideas coming in all the time. You can examine them all immediately as a team. There's also a lot of questions going to be coming up all the time from the team. How do I implement this? How do I implement that? Which if you've got somebody like you in the team, then you can just get onto that straight away. So the team can swarm around the problems they've got and resolve them because they can do everything beginning to end and that removes all the handoffs and the delays yeah. and the misunderstanding and the heavy documentation. Yeah. So it's massively streamlined. Now, there's still a place for some expert UI designers or researchers from time to time, but they need to sit in a team that treats the product team as their customers. So they're yeah. not the gatekeepers of yeah. the police. They are a service being provided yeah. to the product teams when they need a surge or they need some specialized skills mm. that the team doesn't have. And we want those people to continue to be available to the product team on an ongoing basis. And by engaging with this specialized group, which mm. I think is called the capability crew in the unfix model, then they are also teaching the team the skills yeah. at the same time. Yeah. So this makes a lot of sense. Mm. It also describes how you can scale up. Each product team should have somebody with strong UX in it who can help build the capability of the team. And then you can have some people in specialized teams sitting across several teams, like in a program, who can help build the capability of the whole program. Yeah. I think in terms of a process, I like the funnel approach i think combining that with continuously talking to customers yeah. and continuously testing prototypes makes a lot of sense i think the important point here about that funnel is that we have to take things out of the funnel that don't yeah. pass our test of what's yeah. worth doing and not many people are doing that at the moment which is a shame you need to be able to say we're going to have this idea backlog and things are going to go into that and then we're going to prioritize them for mm. research and proof of concepts. And if they prove to be high value, we might then move them into build. But it's going to be a lot of things that are just going to get knocked off at that yeah. point or parked or whatever. We'll say, yeah, yeah, it was an interesting idea. It was worth exploring, but it didn't make it into the worth building. Yeah, which means you've got to have criteria around your goals and know what's worth building. Exactly. And you've got to be able to push back on your managers and say, that was okay. a good idea, let's explore it, and then be able to say, we explored yeah. that and the feedback wasn't good or it's a good idea, but it's not as good as this other mm. thing. So effectively, you're treating all these bets as things that have 
different return on the investment. So I think that's good. And we've talked about how we can do all this sort of thing continuously. So that makes a lot of sense. And products, not projects, skills, not roles. <laughs> the thing um, I don't like about the funnel is once it's out of the funnel, it's out. And that's not true in oh, my yeah. view. Often we park things on the side of the stream. Yeah. We go, it came down the stream a bit. <laughs> we made a bet. It was a bad bet. It was going to sink. We don't want it to be go. We push it yeah. on the bank. It's never coming back. But with some things that we said didn't work, we're going to trash it. And then six months later, for whatever reason, mm. it solved another problem. And so I like yeah. that idea of flowing work, that idea of a stream. And my funnel was mostly to keep the good little things about going wide and narrowing down with double diamond, but not going backwards, not going upstream. I agree with you that things might not work out in your pocket and you might come back to them later. And I also agree with you that you're not done once it's deployed. In fact, once a feature is gone out to your customers and your users, there's a whole feedback loop that has to happen where you monitor their usage of it, you talk to them about the problems they're having with it, and then you use that to refine what you're doing. And we've got to be clear, that's brutal. Spent all this time building this feature and then monitoring that nobody ever used it. Yeah. That is a brutal process for a product person. That is horrible. But that's a massive source of waste. The research yeah. shows 70% of the things that people built for internal applications and also for customers are rarely or never used. So what a massive source of waste that is. We can reduce the risk by talking to people and testing prototypes with yeah. them. I don't know how anybody counts that stuff. I will tell you, there's a company called Pendo who provides product services to SaaS platforms and they can Uh, tell exactly which features. And also the Standish Chaos Group have done (laughs) in-depth studies of internal applications and some external ones. So it's all comes to the same thing. Not just made up for a story. It's just that... Nobody likes to say this because in an organization, everything you do has to be a success. Yeah. (laughs) All right. That's good. Now, how can people find out more about you and what you think, Donna? All my old talks are on my website, which is madmob.com.au, madmob with two A's. That's probably a fine and easy place to find what I've talked about in the past. You can find my books there as well. What are your books? I wrote a book on information architecture, which is old now, but there's still some good content. It's called Practical Guide to Information Architecture. It's on my website for free because my distributor decided that they wouldn't distribute it anymore. There's also a really good book on presenting design that you can buy. It's really skinny, 10,000 words, how to present design and get great feedback. And are you a consultant these days? No, I'm working in-house these days for a cool startup called MakerX. Maker X. What do yeah. Maker X do? We build software products for other startups and ventures. So ah. I'm working on lots of different things all at once and my team are amazing. All right. Great. Great. Thanks very much for coming on. Great to see you. That was the No Nonsense Agile podcast from Murray Robinson and Shane Gibson. If you'd like help to build great teams that create high value digital products and services, contact murray at evolve.co that's evolve with a zero thanks for listening